With the steadily increasing cases of COVID-19 and more and more states reopening, a lot of people are wondering when we're going to have a cure or some kind of vaccine. The hopes are that a vaccine would be ready by early spring. And while there have been some promising treatments introduced, such as Gilead's remdesivir, we have yet to discover our miracle drug to treat COVID-19. The reality is that drug and vaccine development takes time. So today we wanted to talk a little bit about the drug discovery process and why exactly it does take so long. As we go through explaining the drug development pipeline, Emma and I will relate the steps to Ivacaftor, an FDA-approved compound used to treat cystic fibrosis. While there are currently newer drugs used to treat cystic fibrosis, I chose this one as an example because it was the first drug to truly treat the underlying causes of the disease, not just the symptoms. So it was a pretty groundbreaking discovery. Cystic fibrosis, or CF, is a rare genetic disorder that affects the lungs, pancreas, and other organs. Cystic fibrosis is caused by mutations in the cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator gene, or the CFTR gene, because that's very long. The CFTR gene provides instructions to make the CFTR protein. The CFTR protein sits on the surface of cells, and it serves as a channel that chloride ions can pass through. Being able to regulate ion concentration is very important for controlling how water moves through the body, and this is especially important in the cells lining your lungs, because these cells have to maintain a lining of thin and free-flowing mucus to help clear away pathogens in your lung. Individuals with CFTR mutations lose some or all of the CFTR function and tend to have a thick and viscous mucus in their lungs. This is one of the reasons why they are so susceptible to lung infections. And this thick mucus can also form mucus plugs that block the airways. The average life expectancy for individuals with cystic fibrosis used to be around 25 years, but this has steadily risen to 37 years with the development of new therapies. Now that we know a little bit more about cystic fibrosis, we'll introduce the drug discovery process. This process is often described as taking 10 to 15 years. But before we jump into the drug side of things, I think it's important to remember the basic science uh, behind this process can actually take much, much longer. CF was first described in 1938. The mutated gene was discovered in 1989, and Ivacaftor didn't get FDA approved until 2012. For more details on why this basic scientific process takes so long, you can check out our previous episode on the scientific process. Wow, that is a long time. 1936 to 1989? Yeah, 50 years. Well, part of that is probably, you know, nowadays we have so many resources with the completion of the Human Genome Project. We have all these technologies that let us sequence samples from patients. So, you know, if this had arisen... Nowadays, it would have been figured out a lot quicker, probably. Drug discovery can be broadly broken up into four major steps. Discovery, preclinical work, clinical trials, and FDA review. Like Rachel said, the first discovery phase builds on basic scientific research. As scientists, we need to understand the fundamental causes of a disease before we can hope to sort through millions of compounds to find a treatment. This is why the first step is target development. What gene, message, or protein are you going to target? Do you want to improve the function because it's lost in the disease, or do you actually want to lower the function because it's harmful in the disease? 
In the case of cystic fibrosis, the CFTR gene or protein is the most common target, and it was identified in 1989, as we said. Mutations cause its function as a chloride channel to be lost. So in some cases, the protein isn't made at all, and this is especially challenging to fix, although gene therapy to deliver the missing CFTR gene could be an option in these cases. In many other cases, however, the mutations just make the protein unstable or maybe it folds into the wrong shape, so it could be possible to develop drugs that target this broken CFTR to make it more stable, fold cor- more correctly, or improve its function. So once you identify a target, you need a way to select for compounds that influence the target. There are endless amounts of compounds, but how do you sort through them to find one that will affect your specific target? Scientists develop screens to accomplish this. A screen, not like a screen on your window, but this sort of screen is an experiment that you can do to test the effect of a drug on your target. And ideally, you can do this experiment quickly and on a large scale to maximize your chance of success. In 2006, scientists used human cells with mutated CFTR protein to develop a screen. They treated these mutated cells with 228,000 drugs and measured CFTR activity to see which in drugs could improve the function. This is how they identified the original drug that would become Ivacaptor. After you find this drug, which we call the lead compound, you start to think about the practicability of using it for clinical applications. Sure, the drug has the desired effect on your target, but does it also have unintended side effects? There are a lot of factors that go into making a successful drug. Preclinical testing will look closely at these factors, including the drug's ability to be absorbed into the bloodstream, its delivery, can it be taken orally, its metabolism or how it's broken down, its toxicity, and its ability to reach the target organ. Being in the neuroscience field, I can tell you that this is a huge issue for treating brain disorders. It's very difficult to get drugs to cross the brain because of the blood-brain barrier, which we'll talk about in a future episode. Even when you find a lead compound and do safety testing, the compound can always get better. Oftentimes, biology labs will collaborate with chemists to tweak the compounds to make them more effective and safer. Yes, that's true. In fact, um, this was also the case with Ivacaftor. Though the original drug was identified in 2006, scientists used this as a jumping off point and did a lot of tweaking to the original structure. Exact, the exact structure that would become Ivacaptor wasn't published until 2009. So from target identification in 1989 with the discovery of the CFTR gene to lead compound discovery in 2009, all in all, this amounts to 30 years of work. Woo, that's a long time. I mean, that's like someone's whole career. Yeah, that's older than I am, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> So after coming up with your best possible compound, you move on to step two, preclinical testing. Before this compound is used on human beings, scientists must perform laboratory and animal experiments to determine whether the compound is safe for humans and what side effects might occur. Another important aspect that is tested is the drug effectiveness. There's no point to exposing an individual to the risk of taking a drug that doesn't improve outcome or quality of life. Next, it's on to step three, clinical trials. This is where the price tag really starts to go up. Because of the financial and ethical risk here, less than 10% of lead compounds make it into clinical trials. Before you can even start clinical trials, researchers submit an Investigation New Drug Application, or IND, to the Food and Drug Administration. 
In the IND, researchers have to provide all the foundational basic research for the rationale, as well as plans for how the clinical trial will be conducted and what will be measured for the outcomes to measure effectiveness of the drug. Much like planning for experiments in labs, it is absolutely crucial to carefully craft this application. Clinical trials are performed in three phases. Phase one is a small group of individuals, typically 100 or less, and the main goal here is safety. Researchers look at how the drug is absorbed, metabolized, and eliminated in humans. And they also test different doses to see what amounts are safe to give to people. Phase two is a slightly larger group involving hundreds of individuals. The goal here is to look not only at safety, but also at efficacy or does the drug improve quality of life or prognosis? At this point, they will probably still include multiple doses so that they can identify the lowest possible dose that has the maximal effect. Phase two trials will also include a placebo, which is either a type of sugar pill in the case of um, non-life-threatening diseases or a different drug that is currently being used to treat the disease in case of more life-threatening disorders. This is an important negative control because just being in the clinical trial could influence your mood and quality of life. Ivocaftor phase two trial began in 2010. Yeah, that's an interesting point about just being in a clinical trial. I've read a book, uh, it was called, I think, Clinical Trials, and talked about how so many patients just having the day-to-day interaction with their doctor and having someone invested in them and their cancer getting better in the case of this uh, clinical trial. They saw more of a remission in their cancer just from being in the clinical trial and having hope that something would happen. That's an interesting point because a lot of time when I think of the um, placebo effect with a clinical trial, I think of like hope and mind over matter, but you know, you raise another point that maybe they're getting more exposure and more FaceTime with doctors too. So that could also be a factor. So phase three is an even larger group of thousands of individuals. And the goal here is to be able to test the drug on enough people to run statistics that are essential to prove whether a drug is safe and effective. These trials are huge, complex, and incredibly expensive. The trials have to coordinate multiple different testing sites and generate thousands of samples to analyze. And in each of those testing sites, they have to make sure they are testing in the exact same way. For cystic fibrosis, it wasn't possible to include thousands of individuals because it's a very rare disease. So their phase three trial included a little over 200 individuals. Finally, the results of the clinical trial are submitted as a new drug application or NDA to the Food and Drug Administration for review, where officials will evaluate the data, weighing the pros and cons, and make a decision to approve or deny the proposal. These NDA proposals can run over 100 thousand pages. So you can imagine that this step does take some time. Sometimes the FDA may actually ask for more experiments after reading these proposals. Um, Other times, especially in the cases of rare diseases, the FDA may actually expedite this process. For Ivocaftor, this process took only three months, whereas the standard approval takes 10 months, and Ivocaftor was approved in early 2012. About 50% of drugs fail at phase three of clinical trials, which is a financial disaster and can be heartbreaking for families. We, I took a class in pharmacology, and I think they estimated that each drug, if it makes it to phase three clinical trials, they've put in $5 billion of money. Wow. That's astronomical. I mean, no wonder why drugs are as expensive as they are, because 
companies are having to budget in also their failed drugs. Yeah, there's so much of that. It's it's insane. Yeah. Um, so it's a big concern in biomedical and industry research, but nobody knows exactly how to fix our broken drug development system. One pretty common concern is that basic research and testing is being done in human cells on a dish or animal models that are not always a good enough representation of what's actually going on in humans. But how do you remedy that with the obvious ethical concerns of experiments in humans? One way researchers try to speed up this process is by using a strategy called drug repurposing, which means pretty much what it sounds like. Why reinvent the wheel? There are a number of compounds that are already FDA approved, so why not start by looking for a lead compound from that list? If you happen to be lucky enough to find an FDA approved compound that affects your target, a lot of the preclinical steps will be so much easier because the groundwork is set already. For instance, they already know the safety information, maybe already know some of the dosing and other aspects. This is a great way to speed up the discovery and clinical processes. And there are also ways to expedite the process through FDA regulation. Like in the case of Ivacaftor and cystic fibrosis, there are ways to expedite the approval process. Similar to this, and and more recently, the FDA issued an emergency authorization for the use of remdesivir for severe cases of COVID-19. Is the Right to Try Act one of the ways to accelerate this process? Um, Yeah, sort of. The Right to Try Act is targeted towards individuals with life-threatening diseases. So COVID-19 would definitely fall into that category, especially in the severe cases um, that have exhausted all other treatment options and don't qualify for clinical trials. The downside of clinical trials being so rigorous and specifically designed is that some affected individuals are not able to participate in clinical trials, even though they have that disorder. So for instance, when we're talking about cystic fibrosis, there are many, many types of mutations that individuals can have in the CFTR gene. And the original clinical trial had a very narrow definition for who qualifies that um, set restrictions on participants' ages, as well as the types of mutations that they have. There have been follow-up clinical trials after 2012 that resulted in an expansion of who can take the drug. Um, But the idea of the Right to Try Act is to make sure that nobody gets left behind while we wait for the clinical trials and the FDA approval to take place. A new drug has to at least have passed through phase one clinical trials before it can be considered um, for use under Right to Try. On the one hand, making treatments available faster could save time and lives, but on the other hand, approving treatments before phase two, when they are proven effective, could provide false hope or do more harm than good, as was the case with hydroxychloroquine. Speaking of hydroxychloroquine, another unintended downside of that was that people began hoarding it, so other individuals that actually needed it for FDA-approved reasons, such as lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, um, couldn't access it. So I also want to mention that the Right to Try Act is actually quite similar to another FDA program called Expanded Access. And it's the same idea here, but the big difference between Expanded Access and the Right to Try is that while Right to Try circumvents FDA regulation, Expanded Access requires doctors and patients to submit an application to the FDA. 99% of these applications are are actually approved. Um, However, it is true that going through the FDA can take some time. 
But working with the FDA also has benefits of getting guidance on how to administer the drugs. So it, it, you know, in the long run, it might be safer to work with the FDA. And you probably have seen people recently kind of petition, especially I think back with the AIDS epidemic was a bit more like petition if they had certain drugs available. They were like, we want this drug right now. And you get into this conflict of the public wanting the drug, the scientists not totally ready just because they haven't gone through all these processes. So it's great that the Right to Try Act is there, but it also needs to be utilized appropriately. And But in, in the case of many diseases where it's like end of life, close to that, people are kind of willing to try anything. And I think in those cases, it's more likely for them to be able to use a drug that's not totally approved yet. Right. And I think it's kind of interesting that we're covering this topic right after we covered supplements, because it's just such a striking, you know, comparison of how we have one of the best and most rigorous drug discovery systems in the world compared to how we treat supplements. Um, so it's an interesting contrast. <laughs> we just described the numerous, numerous detailed steps in drug discovery. But, you know, at the beginning, I said this process can take 10 to 15 years. So when you break that down, um, we talked about probably basic, the basic science that goes into that goes well beyond those 15 years, but, um, the kind of drug discovery target development and preclinical work can take anywhere from four to seven years. And those clinical trials typically take about six to seven years, whereas waiting for regulatory approval by the FDA can take one to two years. And all of this will vary depending on, you know, the drug and the seriousness of the illness, et cetera, other factors. So in the case of um, cystic fibrosis and Ivacaftor, uh, researchers were able to expedite some of these processes uh, because cystic fibrosis is such a devastating disease. And it's so rare that, you know, they couldn't, meet the requirements for the number of patients in some of those phase three clinical trials. And we've kind of also seen this with uh, hydroxychloroquine and also remdesivir with COVID-19. Like there's more of a push for this, these drugs to go to market or at least be shown to improve COVID-19 symptoms because this disease is horrible and it's affecting many people. Right. And then, you know, sometimes it, it works out. It's always a gamble when you skip steps of these of this process and sometimes it works out like in the case of ivacaftor um, and remdesivir but you know sometimes things don't always work out for the best so it's it's hard to decide yeah it's like where do you justify skipping steps and potentially affecting human lives but then if you don't skip those steps you affect human lives as well so it's like a lose-lose Man, FDA seems like too much pressure. I'm I'm happy working with my little human cells. <laughs> <laughs> happy not even working with those and just with mouse cells. It's great. 